Hear the word of the Lord from Acts eleven nineteen through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, I'm going to pray for us. We've got a lot of work to do today. I know you hear me say that every week because it's true. I do a lot of work during the week to make sure I've got a lot of work to do here. All right, so we've got a long, did I say long sermon? Did I say that? (laughs) Sorry, let me pray. (laughs) Father, would you help us this morning? Um, Would you help us by your grace? First off, um, we just need you. We need you, our city needs you, our world needs you. And um, we could be tempted to be in despair, despondent when we look out at the world and just see the state of affairs and we could be tempted to lose hope. I pray that today you would give us hope, that you would show us that we're not the first Christians to ever feel persecuted, we're not the first Christians to ever feel outnumbered, we're not the first Christians to ever look at the world and go, I don't know if we can do this. But Father, we have uh, seen your gospel change lives in the past, we've seen it change societies in the past, and so we put our hope in you again. And so I ask today that you would help us See with the eyes that you give, hear with the ears that you give us, um, believe with the hearts that you give us. I ask that you would help me preach your word. And Father, you just give us minds to understand it, hearts to love it. Um, I I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, and I need you to help your people hear your voice. Would you do all this for our good and uh, the good of our city, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you're just joining us today, we are concluding our sermon series that we've been calling uh, Fundamentals. We've been studying the last four months. Um, Each week, we've been studying a fundamental of our church, what makes Sacred City, Sacred City. And uh, we've looked at the mission of God. We've looked at what we've called our identities and our rhythms. We looked at our strategies for making disciples and God's mission to renew our cities for the glory of God. We've learned that the gospel is the key that opens all doors for us. The gospel is the power that changes us, it changes our church, and it changes our city. And today we're going to look at kind of the last piece of the puzzle of what makes Sacred City, Sacred City. And here it is. If we are going to renew our cities for the glory of God and make it a better place to live in, we have got to plant more gospel-centered churches. Now, you might look around the Quad Cities and say, well, I don't know, when I drive through the Quad Cities, it seems like there's a lot of churches. 
Well, do we really need more churches? Well, the answer, the short, quick answer to that, yep, we do. We need a lot. If you've been part of our church for very long, you should already know the answer to that question. I've quoted this statistic a lot, but a few years ago, the Barna Research Group released a study on churches and church attendance in cities. And because I'm a pastor, I read stuff like this all the time. And typically, I'm, I'm reading through it, you know, and I, there's not much that really grabs my attention because you're reading these, and you're like, LA is godless. Surprise! New York City, godless. Whoa! Vegas, yeah, we know. It's right on the edge of hell. We get it. It's, it's close, right? We get it, right? Sin City for a reason. And I'm just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Number 14, Quad Cities. What? Whoa. Quad Cities. Maybe there's another one. Davenport, Bettendorf, Moline. Okay, that's us. Wow. We made a list. We made a list. It's the wrong list to make, but we made a list, right? Quad Cities, getting the recognition we deserve, right? And I looked at this and I was like, whoa, immediately I was kind of taken back. Quad Cities, the 14th least church city in the United States. That means the, the amount of churches per capita and also church attendance as a whole. So I don't have time to go into why I think that's the case. The main reason I think that's the case is because when the gospel moves into a certain area and produces changed people, what typically happens is that produces, that has a good effect on society. But then many times people forget about what caused that good effect and they just enjoy the good effect. So what happens is, is the gospel comes in, changes people from the inside out, makes them more moral, makes them harder, work, harder, harder workers, improves their life a little bit, and then sometimes their children don't connect the dots that it was actually God who made this change in the people. And they just think, well, we're just good old boys and we're good old girls and this is just how we do it in Iowa and Illinois, right? We just work hard and we're just moral. And then a few generations later, what you learn is actually when you forget the gospel and you forget the God of the gospel, you actually lose the morals that come along with it. And so when we look at our society today, when we look at our city today, we're seeing a rise in gang violence. We're seeing a rise in crime across the board. We're seeing a rise in all kind of sexual deviancies and all kind of different things. And we're wondering what's wrong with our city. Well, I'm going to say right away, what's wrong with our city is we don't have enough gospel-centered churches. That's what's wrong with our city. Did you know there's some books out uh, by Tom Holland and some different historians. They made this claim. Did you know that democracy has never flourished in any society that wasn't uh, predominated first by Christianity? Democracy only works when people have actually Christian values and Christian understanding of the world and they actually value human rights and different freedoms and other things. What we lose sight of Christianity, we just love the freedom and we lose sight of the Christianity that made the freedom possible. Now, along with this, I also read uh, an interesting statistic from an uh, article or a scholarly review called Cardus. It was... um, study done in Canada, and this is a quote, this is what they say. The value of religious congregations to the wider community, so the value of churches to the wider community, is somewhere in the order of four to five times a congregation's annual operating budget. For example, if you removed a congregation with 
or 250,000 annual budget, the very conservative estimates of the study suggest you would need 1.2 million every year to sustain their economic contribution to the community. Okay? What's that saying? That's saying that when the church of God lives in the city, churches provide value to their community somewhere to the, you know, Basically, five times their value or whatever. Five times their value. Five times their annual operating budget. Why? Because Christians, as they come to believe the gospel and they're changed by God, they become the best neighbors. They become workers for good in the city. They volunteer in soup kitchens and other after-school programs. They educate underprivileged children and serve the needs of the poor in their city. Now, think of the economic impact to our city we could have if we could plant 10 churches tomorrow, right? That many people on mission to our city. Now, we even see right now, Davenport Police Department comes out and they say, we can't stop this, all these thefts and all this stuff going on. We can't stop this on our own. We need help, right? We need help. That's a call to us as the church, We need to be involved in our community and we need to get our faces out of our phones and out of our YouTube videos and out of our Facebooks and out of our Snapchats and out of our own little Netflix world and look at the world around us and go to work in our city. You might say, well, all right, Christians need to serve our city, yeah, 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 but that doesn't mean we necessarily need more churches in our city. We just need the churches who are already here to actually believe the gospel, get healthy, and start growing again. Well, you're kind of right. Most churches that are over 10 years old, they do need spiritual renewal. Pastors come and go. The vision ebbs and flows. And spiritual lethargy kills a church's impact in their city. So there are many churches in our city who you go to church there and they have a nice nice, uh, service on Sunday, but they do nothing when they leave the building. Those churches do need spiritual renewal. We want to continue to pray for those churches and pray for the spiritual renewal and revival of all those churches in our city. We desperately need every church to remember the gospel and preach it week in and week out if we're going to renew the Quad Cities. But this is interesting. Statistics show that the renewal of existing churches is not enough to bring renewal to a city. First, studies show that when an older church undergoes renewal and revival, it begins to grow again. It primarily grows through transfer growth. 80 to 90% of the growth of churches that are over 10 years old are just Christians leaving one church for another church. That's just, move, that's just transferring Christians around on the ship, right? From shi- or church to church. It's not gonna bring renewal to the city. Studies show that the older a church is, the less likely they are to reach people who don't know Jesus. But those same studies show that when a new church is planted and grows, it gains between one-third and two-third of its people from those who are not currently attending any church. That means when you start a new church, it grows primarily through people by converting people who don't know Jesus Christ, who aren't going to a church already. What that means is a new church plant is six to eight times more likely to make disciples of people that don't know Jesus than a congregation of its same size that's 10 years or older. Now, I don't have time to get into all the reasons for this, 
But what it means for us is if we want to renew our city, one of, and one of the keys to accomplishing this is for people who don't know Christ to come to know him, well, the only significant way to increase the number of Christians in a city is by significantly increasing the number of new churches. We have got to plant new churches in our cities. It's a non-negotiable if we want to see our city renewed. The only way for us to see the glory of God renew our city is for us to keep planting new churches in our city. Growing bigger isn't enough. We've got to keep planting churches. Now, all of these reasons are basically pragmatic reasons, right? Statistics say it's important. Statistics say it's vital. But we don't make our decisions just off what's pragmatic and what's, you know, practical. We don't go to statistics and say, okay, that's what we must do. We take everything back to the word of God and say, okay, what does God say? What does God say our, you know, our disciple-making plan should look like? Our city renewal plan, what should it look like? And so it's for, important for us to see that indeed church planting is the biblical way to renew a city and a region and ultimately the world. Now, if you get your Bibles, you can open them up with me to Acts chapter 11. That was the reading that we had read this morning. But before we read this text, I want to put it in context for us, okay? And I'm going to do this fairly fast, as fast as I can do this, <clears throat> okay? If you go back to the very beginning of Scripture, Scripture begins like this. In the beginning, God. Now, that is the most offensive introduction you could possibly have in our society today. Because our society says, in the beginning, you. Whatever you want, the world must revolve around you. And the Bible goes, forget that. In the beginning, God. He is the ultimate reality of everything that is, okay? He is the reason we're here. And he makes man in his own image, man and women in his own image. And he tells them, just don't eat from this one tree. And they disobey. And the Subsequent curse comes and everything is broken. Everything is bent inward. Everything begins to fall apart. Mankind's relationship with God is fractured, right? They hide from God for the first time ever. God said, if you sin, the soul that sins, it should surely die. And so now there's a curse of death on them. Humanity's relationship with one, un, one, one another is now broken. Adam and Eve doubt each other. They're naked. They were naked and not ashamed. Now they're ashamed and hiding in the bushes. And then we see their children start turning on one another and murder enters the human race. And then this thing just spirals out from there, right? So much so that God looks down at, on, on humanity, and I think by Genesis chapter 11, and he says, mankind is only set on doing evil all the time. I'm upset that I even made them. I'm gonna destroy all humanity and start again. And he does that with one family. He chooses Noah. Noah was found faithful. He chooses Noah and his family, and he literally annihilates the rest of the human population. And when they get off the boat, he gives them the same call he gave Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And basically what he's saying there is, honor me with everything you do, make good God-honoring culture to the glory of God, go out, make children, and fill the earth with the glory of God. You're, you know, he, we're made in the image of God. Fill the earth like that. And started over. Unfortunately, and God gave the rainbow and said, I'll never flood the entire earth again. 
Unfortunately, from that moment, that cycle of destruction just reset and started over. Okay, now here's what we need to see. Sometimes conservatives can think if we just go back in time, things will be better. Okay, here's what going back in time is like. Going back in time is rewinding the movie and then pushing play again. Guess what happens? We always end up here. Every time we end up, the movie never changes, okay? The movie never changes. This was the cycle of destruction that's caused by sin. The movie never changes. It's like this. I sin against God. I get cursed. Things don't go well for me. I'm, usually, I'm either destroyed or I, I, the Lord brings me back to repentance. As he brings me back to repentance, he push, pushes his blessing upon me. Things go well again. And if I'm not careful, I begin to forget God in my prosperity and the cycle goes on and on and on and on. That's the cycle of the Old Testament. Okay, that's the cycle of the Old Testament. He started over with Noah, same thing happened. Same exact thing happened. Until God chooses in the fullness of time to change the movie, to change the story. How does he change the story? The second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, steps out of heaven, we could say, puts on flesh, that's called the incarnation, becomes one of us, becomes man, and does, he breaks the cycle. He completely breaks the cycle. He does what no man has ever done before, and he lives the perfect life. What does that mean? That means he never forgot God. He never turned away from the Father. He never sinned once in his entire life. He only did what is good, right, and perfect his entire life. And so at this moment in the story, if you're following along, you're about to go, yes! It's coronation day, baby. The king is here and he's about to make all his enemies under his footstool. He's about to reign on the world and we're about to enter into the new heavens and the new earth. This is great. But then at the moment we think that's going to happen, Jesus exchanges that proverbial crown for a crown of thorns. And he doesn't just live the life that we should live like our example, like our great Christ exemplar. Wow, look at our perfect king. He's amazing. No, no, no. He doesn't just just come as our example. He comes as our substitute. He takes our place. He steps into humanity and on the cross, he, what he does is he actually takes all of the sins of mankind onto himself and he dies a substitutionary death in our place. When Adam sinned, the soul that sins, it should die. Jesus took Adam's place. Jesus took Noah's place. Jesus took David's place. Jesus took our place. He took our sins onto the cross and paid for them there so that in his resurrection, when he was justified that he was the son of God, right? he didn't stay dead because death had no hold on him because he didn't have the curse of the law. He wasn't under the curse of the law. So when he got up, he was free to have a divine exchange with us, give us his righteousness, and we give him our unrighteousness. We give him our sins. And so that's what, we, when Jesus got up from the grave, we were fully justified, That's what happened to us. We were justified, made right with God. And then this bizarre turn happens. And and again, they're like, okay, we're justified. Let's set up the kingdom. Jesus is like, yeah, I gotta go. No, don't go. It's better that you go. Doubtful. I doubt it's better that you go. We really like you here, son of God. Jesus, no, I gotta go. He's exalted to the right hand of God. 
Now he, he lives in the, we say, the control room of the universe at the right hand of God, ordaining all things for the glory of God. And he says this, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is going to come into you and fill you with power and, and help you be my witnesses in all the world. That's the promise. Jesus exalted, he's at the right hand of the Father. He says, go, to, uh, go into Jerusalem and wait for me, and I'm gonna send the promise of the Holy Spirit. This little ragtag bunch of believers go up to the upper room. They sit there. They start praying. What's supposed to happen? I don't know. We're told to pray. How long? I don't know. Pray. Okay. We're going to start praying. Peter's one of them. Peter's, right? At this time, he's a huge wimp. He's already denied Jesus several different times. And then all of a sudden, on the, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and visibly rests on these believers where there's like tongues of flames of fire on their head. They begin speaking in new languages where everybody can hear, everybody can interpret it. All these different people that spoke different languages could understand what they were saying. It was a divine miracle. And in that moment, here it is. In that moment, the, the church of Jesus Christ was formed and sent out to be witnesses in all the world, okay? Now, they didn't run out. They ran out and they preached the gospel. 3,000 people got saved. But guess what? Then they sat down and said, oh, cool, let's start a church. This is awesome. This is awesome. And so what happens? Well, Paul is breathing out threats against the church of Jesus Christ. Hates Jesus, hates Christians, hates, hates the Christian church, goes and gets uh, legal orders to throw Christians in jail. He's there at the stoning of Stephen. He's approving of Stephen being the first uh, martyr of the Christian church. And now Christians are like, oh, Paul is out to kill us. And so they take off. They start, listen, this is how God spread the church across the Near East. They didn't get, get home and go, I'm a missionary, let's go. Uh, my uncle down there, he doesn't know Jesus. Let's get out of here. No, they got back and they got together like, oh man, this is a, I like this church. I like this thing. And what does God do? God allows persecution to come to drive them out. It's like kicking over the, the anthill, right? You kick over the anthill, they just spread out. That's what happens, okay? God kicks over the anthill, allows persecution to come up, and now they start spreading. This is where we're at in our text, okay? We're picking up in Acts chapter 11. This is where we're at in the story. Are you with me? Okay, can I just tell you, this is gonna be a little bit more academic of a, of a sermon today, okay? It's a little bit of a history lesson. Here's my goal. I'm trying to take us from Acts chapter 11 to where we are right now, okay? So I've got 20 minutes to go 2,000 years, all right? Can, we, can you go with me? Can you be engaged? Okay, please, please do that. Here we go. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. That's the Greek speakers. Also preaching the Lord Jesus. So here we see, as they're spread across the land, they're preaching Jesus. They're sharing the gospel. Keep going. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord. That's a powerful phrase. If God be for us, 
Who can be against us? Paul's trying to persecute us. Paul's trying to kill us. But the hand of the Lord is with us. Keep going. And the great number who believed turned to the Lord. We see the gospel changing people. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, here. Here's what's going on. Church begins in Jerusalem. They get spread out. They start sharing the gospel. Now they're in Antioch. A church gets planted in Antioch. The church in Jerusalem hears about it and sends Barnabas. Go check it out. Make sure they're not a cult, right? Like, go, go make sure they're not doing dumb stuff down there in Antioch. Now that's where Barnabas comes in. Look, here it is. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, evidence of the gospel, gospel fruit, God had brought people from death to life, from darkness to light. God had made people into Christians into that city. He was glad. He gets there, amen. The gospel's moved out of Jerusalem. It's in Antioch, I'm glad. Look, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. God has done a great work here. Keep the faith in Antioch. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's Paul, same guy. They just, he uses that name interchangeably, Saul Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, so right here, here's where I wanted us to see. A church gets planted in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Then believers get scattered out to Antioch. They start preaching the gospel, making disciples, gathering those disciples together. And now they plant a new church in Antioch, in the, which is modern day. It's the largest city in, that, in, in what is modern day Syria. It was about a half a million people, not much bigger than the Quad Cities. Then the elders in Jerusalem send Barnabas to Antioch to check out this new church and make sure it's good and, and to encourage the saints there. And Barnabas realizes, you know what this church needs? This church needs Paul, converted Paul. This church needs Paul. This, needs church, this church needs a church planting resident, basically, is what Paul is. So he goes and he gets Paul and he brings him back to the church in Antioch and Paul and Barnabas settle there for a year to make disciples and build up the church and equip the church for church planting. <clears throat> what we see here is Paul is being trained for ministry while doing gospel ministry. He plants himself in the church in Antioch to later be, to be trained up there, to later be sent out to plant more gospel-centered churches. And I want us to turn to Acts chapter 13 because we're gonna go through some text here. We're gonna move pretty quick. And this is what I want us to see what happens because of this one church in Antioch becoming a church planting church, I want us to see what happens. Chapter 13, verses one through five. <clears throat> now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So ordain them, set them apart. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the God, a word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. Okay, so we see what's happening. Paul and Barnabas now in Antioch, they get, the church lays their hands on them and now sends them on. They've been trained there for a year in gospel-centered ministry and church planting and now they're sending them out to go plant more gospel-centered churches. Verse 13, how do we do that? Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel, and you here who fear God, listen. Okay, I'm gonna skip the introduction because it gets long. I'm gonna go down to verse 26. <clears throat> Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. He's saying, in Jerusalem, they didn't understand the prophecies of the Old Testament, so they crucified Jesus. Keep reading. Fulfilled them, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, from the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to his people. Here's the deal. Remember this. The gospel is a historical fact. It's a historical reality. The message they're preaching is they condemned Jesus. He was prophesied to be the son of God, to be crucified and be resurrected. And guess what? He was resurrected. And, we, and right here with us are witnesses. We saw the resurrected Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected to new life, he was seen by over 500 witnesses. He keeps going on. <clears throat> Verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. I'm gonna go to 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I, I'm gonna skip down to verse 36. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Oh, I know, guys, it's a lot. Saying this, when they said David wasn't gonna see corruption, it was pointing towards the ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ. David died and rotted in his tomb. Jesus Christ died, put in a tomb, and did not see corruption, and he was resurrected to new life. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, 
forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from what you could not be from the law of Moses. Again, this is something new that's entered in the world, and you can have forgiveness of your sins forever. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Do you see the progression here? Do you see that the gospel is moving out from the center? It's going from Jerusalem to Antioch and beyond, and it's gaining ground. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's a lot of text, right? I get it. I wanna show you a slide. Here's what we see. Because of the persecution by Paul, the church in Antioch gets planted. Paul becomes a church plant at the church in Antioch. From Antioch, Paul gets sent to Salamis. From Salamis, they go to Paphos. From Paphos, they go to Perga. From Perga, they go to Pisidia. From Pisidia, they go to Iconium. From Ly- then to Lystra, then to Derby. Then they go back through. This is Paul's first missionary journey. What we see is Antioch is a church planting church. See, they, weren't just, they didn't just plant a church. They planted a church, trained men, sent those men out, went out and strengthened those churches. When churches got planted, they rejoiced and they were greatly encouraged about it. Antioch became a church planting church. We want to be a church planting church like Antioch. They trained, they sent, they supported, they strengthened, they celebrated. We want to do all of those things in our city, in our state, in our region, in our world. It is the only way we're actually going to renew our city for the glory of God. We have to have more gospel-centered churches. Now, I'm about to pick up some speed. You better hope so, at least. Because Peter and Philip are now planting churches in the most strategic cities of Lydia, Joppa, Caesarea, Tomas, Ashdod. Paul goes to Syria and beyond planting churches. In Acts 16.10, Paul converts Lydia. She's the first Christian church in Europe. From there, Paul goes to Athens and then to Corinth and then to Ephesus sharing the gospel and planting churches. You feel the pace quickening up a little bit? Can you see how the gospel is on the move? And as it goes out, churches are getting planted further and further from the center of where things started. By the way, this makes us so much different than Islam. Mm-hmm. We're moving out from the center. Christianity is meant to be a global religion. Islam is not. It's based in one place. I don't have too much time to go there. About to pick up pace again. Y'all ready for this? Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. If you're tired, we can just go home and take naps. I get it. 
Here we go. AD 51, Paul begins his second missionary journey that will take him through modern day Turkey and into Greece. AD 80, the first Christians are reported in Tunisia and France. AD 150, first uh, the gospel reaches Portugal and Morocco. 174, first Christians are reported in Austria. 197, Tertullian writes that Christianity has penetrated all ranks of society in North Africa. 200, the first Christians are reported in Switzerland and Belgium. 202, Roman Emperor Severus issues an edict forbidding conversion to Christianity. Wonder how that'll turn out. 100 years later, Emperor Constantine issues the Edict of Milan legalizing Christianity in the Roman Empire. 386, Augustine of Hippo is converted. 432, Patrick goes to Ireland as a missionary. We should probably like wear green stuff and drink green beer to celebrate that fact. 596, Gregory the Great sends Augustine and a team of missionaries to England to reintroduce the gospel. The missionaries settle in Canterbury and baptize 10,000 people within a year. 650, the first church is organized in the Netherlands. 828, the first Christian churches in present-day Slovakia is built in Nitra. First missionaries reach the area that is now the Czech Republic. 1382, the Bible is translated into English from Latin by John Wycliffe. 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. 1509, the first church building is constructed in Puerto Rico. 1529, Franciscan Peter of Ghent writes from Latin America that he and a colleague had baptized 14,000 people in one day. 1537, Pope Paul III orders that indigenous people of the Americas of the New World be brought to Christ, quote, by the preaching of the divine word and with the example of the good life. 1541, Franciscans begin establishing missions in California. 1543, Anabaptist Menno Simmons leaves the Netherlands and begins planting churches in Germany. 1554, 1,500 converts to Christianity are reported in what is now Thailand. 1582, Jesuits begin mission work in mainland China. They introduce Western science, mathematics, and astronomy. 1592, first missionaries arrive in Pakistan. 1598, Spanish missionaries push north from Mexico into what is now the state of New Mexico. 1620, pilgrims, after having their first service on the Mayflower, plant First Parish Church of Plymouth, Massachusetts. 1630, an attempt is made in the El Paso, Texas area to establish a mission on the Mansos Indians. 1690, Franciscan missionaries arrive in Texas. 1706, itinerant Presbyterian missionary is finally able to organize the first American presbytery. 1735, John Wesley goes to the Indians in Georgia as a missionary with the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. 1743, David Brainerd starts ministry to North American Indians. 1745, David Brainerd, after preaching to Native Americans in December, writes this in his journal about their response. Quote, they soon came in, one after another, with tears in their eyes, to know what they should do to be saved. It was an amazing season of power among them, and it seemed as if God had bowed the heavens and come down, and that God was about to convert the whole world. 
1758, John Wesley baptizes two slaves, thus breaking the skin color barrier of the Methodist societies. 1782, freed slave George Lyle goes to Jamaica as a missionary. 1794, eight Russian Orthodox missionaries arrive in the Kodiak Islands of Alaska. Within a few months, several thousand people have been baptized. I didn't even know there were several thousand people in Alaska. 1832, Tiva, a formal cannibal and pioneer Pacific Islander missionary is commissioned by John Williams to work on the Samoan island of Monono. 1833, in Dubuque, Iowa, Charles Van Crickenborn, a Jesuit from St. Louis, baptizes the children of a half Indian, of a half Fox Indian. 1833, First Church is planted in Iowa near Dubuque. He also planted, this is Dominican Father Mazzuccelli, he also planted churches in Lee County and St. Anthony's in Davenport, Iowa. In 1838, 10 people gathered together in a small building on the corner of Ripley and Front Street. This was the first Presbyterian congregation in Davenport. In 1839, First Baptist Church is organized and the first service is held in the home of John Eldridge. 1840, David Livingstone is in present-day Malawi with the London Missionary Society. They go to Thailand and labor for 18 years until they see their first Thai convert. 1854, Hudson Taylor arrives in China. 1865, the China Inland Mission is founded by Hudson Taylor. And the Salvation Army is founded in London by William Booth. 1921, Dr. R.R. R. Brown establishes the Omaha Gospel Tabernacle, and the first services are held at 20th and Douglas. This would later be known as Christ Community Church of Omaha, Nebraska. 1996, Mark Driscoll plants Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. 2000, Driscoll founds Acts 29, a church planting network. 2000, Ethan Burmeister, pastor of, a former college pastor of Christ Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska, plants Core Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska. 2002, Darren Patrick planted the Journey Church in St. Louis, Missouri. 2005, Bob Thune, former college pastor of Christ Community Church, and a team of 60 people from Christ Community Church in Omaha plant Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. 2010, Justin and Amanda Dean moved to Omaha to complete a church planting residency with the Acts 29 Network. 2011, Steve Mizell is sent out from the Journey Church to plant Trailhead Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. 2012, the Deans moved back from Omaha to plant Sacred City Church with a launch team of about 30 people. 2014, Corey and Andrea Johnston are sent out by Trailhead Church in Edwardsville to plant Heights Church in Collinsville and are being financially supported and coached by Sacred City Church. 2017, Sam and Becca Schmidt are sent out of Sacred City, Iowa to plant Sacred City Moline in Moline, Illinois and are being financially supported by Heights Church in Collinsville, Illinois. This is really harder than it looks. I'm really getting tired. 2018, Scott, was, Scott Gaskill was assessed by Acts 29 and planted Harvest City Church in Iowa City, Iowa and was financially supported and coached by Sacred City Church. 2020, former elder of Sacred City Church, Dr. Casey Shutt, planted King's Cross Church in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, financially supported by Sacred City Church. 2020, 
Nick Powell was assessed by the Acts 29 network and sent back to his hometown of Clinton, Iowa to plant Hope City Church, financially supported by Sacred City Church. <laughs> Woo! <clears throat> now, these are just a few highlights of God's mission, okay? Kingdoms have come and gone. Empires have risen and fallen. Kings have come and gone. Presidents have come and gone. And yet God's unstoppable mission is still moving on and on and on and on. Our network, Acts 29, has planted over 684 churches on six continents in the past decade. We have planted churches in 44 different countries. Sacred City, I don't even know what the number is right now. I think we've planted 16 churches, I think is what we're at, in Kenya. All right, we don't talk about that very often. We're gonna give a big update on that coming up in August, right? Right now, we have 132 church planters in the candidate phase working to meet their final requirements to be Acts 29 churches. And we have 459 pastors currently in the application phase. Now, why do I say all that? Because this is why we're here this morning. This is our purpose. We are here to make God known through our worship and through our witness that we are here to call people in to, the, to worship our God, train them up, send them out to make disciples, plant churches, and renew our city. And we are here. This isn't something we invented. This isn't something we're doing on our own power. We're here this morning because God has an unstoppable mission. Now, it's going to ebb and flow. It's going to go up and it's going to go down. But it's unstoppable because he's unstoppable. Can you believe this? Over 2,000 years of church planting and gospel preaching all birthed out of the spirit of God from the day of Pentecost and pushed out from the center by Stephen's death. All of that reverberating out to us being here today. I imagine Stephen, right? Stephen preaches that first, first gospel sermon. People start throwing rocks, right? And he looks up and sees the glory of God and doesn't really understand anything, but all right, I'm taking one for the team here. And now 2,000 years later, Stephen's in heaven going, oh, that worked out well. Oh, I see how this moved on, right? And this might be coming for us in the very near future. God uses persecution to push out his church into mission. When we get comfortable and lazy and forget all the goodness of God and just start enjoying all the fruits of Christianity, and we forget that it's all from the gospel and it's all from a relation with Jesus, he brings persecution to us to remind us of the mission of God. All of this, it says, because his plan and his hand, think of it, his unstoppable plan and his hand guiding the whole thing. We have been chosen by God to do this. 
His hand and His plan are in control and His hand has written us into this epic story and we have a a part to play. It might be a small part. We're in Iowa, right? We're not in LA. We're not in this cultural Mecca that we don't know what God's got for us. We're in Iowa. We're in the Quad Cities, right? But we have a small part to play in extending the mission of God. Maybe our children's children will be, you know, they'll be talking about Sacred City 20, 30, 40 years from now. As they're still in our city and they're still serving the city and they're still on mission to their city. And then maybe they'll say, remember when our grandparents or our parents were passionate about church planting? And that was when it changed. Remember, that's when the city began to change. Remember that? When they stopped worrying about how comfortable they were, they were and what neighborhood they lived in, they started living on mission. They started planting churches. Now here, here's, what's the, what's the big problem? What, what does this push up against? Why is this so hard for us to actually live like we're a part of this epic narrative? We're part of this epic story. Well, here, here's the example I use. Um, often t- when, when my kids were little and I would be tired at night and, and I didn't want to read another story, I would just try to get through bedtime really quick and I would just make up a story for them. And when I made up a story for them, they were always the hero, right? It was gonna be really quick. Like once upon a time, everything was good. You were a princess. Something bad happened and then you fixed it and made things right. All right, we love you. Good good night. Let's pray. Let's go to bed, right? It was something really small. It was all about them. They're the prince. They're the princess. They're the redeemer. They're the hero. They're the one that that did the great deed, right? And then I'm moving on. Let's go to bed. Well, here's what's actually happened, I feel like, in our society. It's that's the story we're all trying to live. We're all living this little bitty make-believe story that we are the center of the, we're the center of the story. It's all about us. We're trying to get everybody else to play some small little part in our little made up story. We have our own version of reality and we want everybody else to bend to our vision of reality and who we are. Now listen, you can do that. And I feel like if you try to do that, you're going to waste your life. I think this is why video games, and social media are so popular because on video games and social media, you actually get to bend reality to your wishes. You can take 165 photos before you get the one that actually makes you look decent. Now listen, one out of 160, that might mean, now nah, I better not say that. Right. You, you do the math there, right? What we're trying to do is convince the world we're something that we're not. Social media actually buys into that, re- that false reality. Listen, here's the problem. The world doesn't operate like that. We can't operate with our, every one of us have our own source of truth. We all have to have a shared sense of truth. Imagine if, you know, we, I know a lot of crazy stuff is going on right now. You know, biology doesn't mean anything. Sexuality is just whatever you make up in your head. Imagine if we use that same mentality for the rest of our life. Well, I know that stoplight is red, but to me, that stoplight's green. For you, that means stop. For me, that means go. Reality doesn't conform to our made-up categories. 
Reality doesn't conform to our made up little stories. And here's the reality. The reality is God has one big epic story and that's the story of God and we're a part of that. And if we will submit to that and say, okay, I want your truth, I want your reality, I want in the beginning God, not in the beginning me, then I'm gonna step into that reality, I'm gonna play a little small part in the most epic story ever. Or we can have, try to be living these little minuscule, minuscule stories that's all about us and trying to get the world to conform to us. Many of us are trying, we're living our lives right now like we're the main character of our own story and that's a really small life. That's a really good way to waste your life. But God is inviting us into a bigger story Our lives can have a deeper meaning when we live for his glory and we have a part to play in his mission to make himself known in the world. And here's the best news, guys. I know when we look outside, it looks dark and it looks despondent. It did for the early believers as well. But we have something that the early believers in the book of Acts didn't have. We have the book of Revelation. We have the end of the story. We know how it's going to end. We know who's going to, here's spoiler alert, God wins! God wins in the end. So right now, we have a choice to be on his team in his story or not. That's how simple it can be this morning. And I'm challenging us, in the midst of a godless society, in the midst of a society that's off its rockers and it's pulling us away from God's truth, we must, like these believers, remain faithful and steadfast to the Lord, be committed to him and be willing to to suffer persecution when it comes. And be passionate about making disciples, planting churches and renewing our city. Let me pray for us. Father, You, no other God has done what you've done. We are tempted to doubt your goodness. We're tempted to doubt your power. We're tempted to doubt your control. And when we take a a 2,000-year glance at human history, Father, we have so many reasons to believe. So many reasons to see how you're working all things out for the good of those who believe. Father, would you help us live as part of your mission, live as part of your story? Would you help us live with eternity in mind? Would you help us plant more churches? God, we want to see Davenport and Bettendorf and Rock Island and Moline and all the surrounding towns around us. We want to see them renewed for the glory of God. And we know that's only going to happen is if the gospel gets planted in those towns and disciples get made and churches get planted. So would you do this for your glory and for the good of our area, Lord? We're begging you, Holy Spirit. We're begging you to even start a renewal, start a revival, even now as you've done in the history of civilizations. You've done it before. We ask you to do it again. Renew us, Lord. Help us keep our eyes on you. Stay faithful to you. Father, as we come to you this morning with our hands open and our hands dirty even with sin, we're reminded once again that you give us yourself. That you are a gracious God. Jesus took our place. So we come with open hands and we receive the body.
It's the bread. We receive the blood. That is the cup. And we're reminded that we are justified not by our mission's work, not by our renewing work. We're justified only by the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Fill us again, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.